0: This is Footy Time with Daniel Andrews, and I'm joined on the other line by Johnny Raff. How are you, Johnny? Uh, Thanks, Dan. Pleasure to be here. So just before I get started, I have a confession that Johnny, too, is a Melbourne supporter, so we'll try not to make it too (laughs) Melbourne-centric. Yep. Guilty as charged. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So to kick things off, what do we think about feel-good moments from the opening round? What was your feel-good moment or story, Johnny?
1: Yeah, um, I think my feel-good moment was I bought um, Tom Mitchell. He had been out of the game for so long, and I just thought his game was sensational. Um, it was a massive comeback from the Hawks, uh, and I think he had about seventeen possessions in that third quarter while making that big comeback. And yeah, I just thought it was really good. He'd been out for a long time. It's good to have the premier midfielders of the comp, you know, back in town.
0: Absolutely. So, did he look like he was back to his Brownlow best, or was it just nice to see him be so influential?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think more than infl- I think he can definitely hit another gear, but yeah, it was just good to see him influencing the contest like he usually does and yeah, just going about his business. Absolutely. And when you've got a player who's been out for
0: that long or had such a serious injury, like there's always that question mark whether they can actually get back to their best. So, it's always a bit of a relief when they actually do show you that, you know, they can do it still.
1: Yeah, absolutely and yeah, especially with those kinds of injuries. I didn't actually
0: see much of that game. I was tracking the scores. And uh, my mate, who's a Hawk supporter, was going all over the place, obviously. But what happened in that third quarter? It was a
1: huge turnaround. Well, it was, it was really funny because I was actually at a gig on Saturday night after the D's game uh, at the Forum, and um, there was a bit of an intermission. So halfway through the third quarter, we actually put KO on our phone. And, um, yeah, we were sort of just in a corner looking at, the, at all the action unfold. And, yeah, it, was, it just – yeah, it, I, I didn't see much of, of the early – yeah, early parts with Essendon leading, but yeah, it just seemed like uh, it was just in to win for a while, and, and the Hawks, yeah, just found a way back in. They just sliced them up, some yeah. good ball use. Yeah, uh, yeah, as they've always been known to have.
0: <laughs> Bit of a yeah. worry for the Bombers, but uh, I think they played relatively well from everything I've heard, so still some positives to take there. So, uh, my feel-good moment was really just getting back to the footy. We all love the footy, right? If well, you listen, if you're listening to the Footy Time podcast, I'm pretty sure you love the footy. So uh, yeah, just being able to go to the MCG, um, nice day. It did go a bit cloudy in the second half, but it was still really pleasant. And just getting to see your team play live, that's it's the joy of footy, right? There's nothing really better than that. And like, Melbourne even put in a half decent performance, so I had a cherry on top. <laughs>
1: Um, absolutely, Dan. Totally agree. Um, it's, what well, what's it been? Well over 12 months now since we were able to go to the MCG. And even with those, I guess, COVID protocols, it was still just, yeah, it was that special feeling of being in the G and just, yeah, watching the boys run out and yeah, even better. They had
0: a win. Yeah. I didn't really notice the whole COVID protocols thing too much other than like, you know, there being the restriction on the crowd, but I don't think that would have affected that particular game we're talking about too much melbourne Freo. there's never gonna be few... one thousand by the end of it
1: yeah it was a little bit
0: disappointing but you know ticker tech and everything it's not everyone's cup of tea but yeah it was great to see everyone having such a good time and the roar when melbourne actually does something right it's always yes.
1: it's always great to hear <laughs> absolutely i think the yeah i didn't notice it a whole lot either apart from just getting into the ground and not being able to use your membership card to get in that was probably the only real um difficult part of the day I guess one question is like
0: do you think the whole COVID situation even now is putting some people off still going to the footy other than just the difficulty in getting a ticket like would people be thinking twice
1: I think there's probably something to that Um, and it's probably similar to I guess the attitude to people taking public transport Um, you know you see a lot of people going back to offices now but they're probably a bit reluctant to take the transport that they did once they're probably all in their cars now I feel like it might be that sort of close, confined space feeling maybe. then.
0: Yeah, I guess it's yeah. a little bit different because it's outdoors. But I, I do think there's something to that psychology you're describing there. Yeah. Not everyone would feel 100% confident to go back to the footy.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, moments when you're sort of getting to your seat, I guess, as well.
0: Yeah, and I think we saw that a bit with the Australian Open. Like They really struggled to draw a crowd. and yeah. I think a lot of people were surprised by that. But perhaps we shouldn't have been. Especially with how much the players soaked it up in quarantine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yes. yeah, I guess people are that passionate about footy that, you know, I guess it overcomes a lot of that. And uh, yeah, hopefully everyone will be able to get back at some point. Absolutely. All right, let's jump into the main part of our agenda. So I guess it won't probably surprise anyone that it is somewhat stand rule centric, but <laughs> we have mixed, <laughs> we've got plenty of other stuff mixed in here as well. And I promise you guys, this episode won't go for an hour and a half like the previous one that was that was a little too long but anyway let's kick it off with this stand rule stuff so we all know what the stand rule is at the moment you might have heard it on your uh, telecast the empire yelling stand stand uh over and over but the question we've got here johnny is uh how's it affected scoring and the way the game's being played that was why they brought it in for the first place right That's... so is it doing its job what's happening? Um...
1: Oh. It's it's a bit of a cop out. I just I but I I'm still undecided on it. To be honest, I think the only real thing that I can definitely say for sure is that there seems to be more end-to-end action. The ball is moving a lot more and frequently, rather than being congested in one spot. And yeah, getting these scrums and yeah, rugby it does situations.
0: seem it does seem to be a lot easier to get from say your back fifty to your forward fifty. I did notice that a lot. And I think yeah. that's more similar to sort of the late 90s, maybe early 2000s play, where it was sort of that end-to-end style. So I don't know how much we've pushed it back that way, but there's definitely less stoppages between uh, in the in the midfield, really.
1: Once the ball gets in action, it's sort of just peeing around. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, look, I just think um, it's, it's opened up the play a little bit. Um, I t- actually did look at I tried to come up with some statistics myself of the number of stoppages in general oh, yeah. play. Uh, I don't know how helpful this is going to be, but I tried to come, you know, come up with just the general stoppages, not the centre cleaners. Oh, yeah, yeah. they the ones yeah, around the ground, um, yeah. And look, compared to round one from 2019, um, on average in round one 2019, there was 51, and <laughs> in round one 2021, it is 42. It's one game. You can't take much out of it, but... It's a better sign than the alternative, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, like that doesn't sound like a lot, but it's
0: still what, like around twenty percent less. And like I think just the eye test is as powerful as anything here. Like it just looks more open. It looks. It definitely does. It does look more aesthetically pleasing, I think, to the eye. And it's all about scoring as well, right? Because we we go to the footy to see score we don't go to see rolling balls the whole time at least at least I don't (laughs) no it's other sports for that yeah like we do want the players to be able to score so I did actually do a little bit of digging here and uh, just comparing I know it's only one round but that's all we got to talk about so let's go back a little bit first so 2019 our last proper sort of completed season that wasn't adjusted we had average score per team of 80.4 Semi-respectable. Then we have the adjusted score for 2020. So I've adjusted this uh, 20% extra for normal game time. So that brings it up to 72.9. So that's very low. And I think we saw that in a lot of those slugs last year. It was it was a bit yeah. of a hard watch sometimes.
1: <laughs> All yeah, right. even with the shorter quarters, I mean, they were just they were nowhere near it in terms of score. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I think yeah.
0: if you take it, if you, if you didn't adjust, it was around 60 points per team. So yeah, ten goal wins, and I don't know if that's what we really want for our game. All right, so we we dropped roughly seven points from two thousand nineteen to two thousand twenty. Round one, twenty twenty one, we go up, which is a great sign. So we go up to eighty five as the average score for each team across the whole round. So obviously there was some higher scoring games than others, but and it's only one round. But I think if you look at the way the game was played on the weekend and just the goal tallies. You can see that there is something that's different. It's easier for the teams to actually attack when they want to. And they're taking it on, I reckon. What do you reckon, Johnny?
1: Yeah, look, you can only go by... I mean, it's only one game, but you can only go by what we see so far. I mean, we'll obviously revisit it again in a few weeks, maybe four rounds in. But, yeah, I I totally agree. I think it's it's what people want to see. They want to see all aspects of the game. They want to see the physicality. They want to see the... Um, the athleticism and and they want to see some decent skills on display so the more chances you get to showcase all of those things the better exactly so I think by
0: freeing it up a little bit and that is something that's run through my head every now and then over the last few weeks once all this has started happening just it's almost like the football's been set free a little bit there's more space for the players to work and there's more happening (laughs) I reckon so it took The average winning score was 95.5 points so it took a decent score to win a game on the weekend and out of those nine winning sides four of them cracked the hundred so another good sign so one to watch but uh, everything's pointing to more scoring um, which I for one am really up for don't know about
1: you Johnny (laughs) yeah look absolutely I mean as you said before everyone likes a nice nice scoring high scoring game Um, I, I don't think it's everything um i don't think i don't necessarily think a high scoring game makes a great game so if you've got scores that end up being say you know 136 to 126 or something with about you know 20 goals each (laughs) look that's nice once in a while but uh, i think as long as you're sort of around that 100 mark in terms of points scored that's yeah yeah. that's a good game to me yeah
0: to me it's not so much about the average between both teams, but I would want the winning team to be out, to have to put on a decent score to win. So, you know, to win, if you can kick, if you have to kick 14 or 15 goals to win, I feel like that's a good benchmark. So it's yeah, certainly better than the,
1: the Ross line days of, you know, eight goals. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well,
0: he'll be back next year. I need, there's so many coaches
1: out of contract. Surely he'll be back. <laughs> well, I'm, sure, I'm sure he'll, he'll get a look in somewhere.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, Next question. So another stand rule one, you would be happy to know. <laughs> um, will the stand rule make it harder for teams to play a slower controlled brand of football? Thinking about West Coast and Geelong who really do like to you know, use that short kicking game at times to really pick the opposition apart. Will that be as useful if the, these trends continue with less stoppages and you know, more attacking pay, play perhaps in favour?
1: What do you reckon, Johnny? Yeah, another good one. Another one that I don't really have a definitive answer for. But, um, you know, think about that kick mark style that West Coast played in the 2018 season when they won that flag. I mean, yeah, it was just, you know, they really had it down pat. Um, And And just like Geelong Geelong as
0: well, like, you know, when they were playing well last year, they just obliterated teams. It was almost like, they were powerless to stop them that control they had but then they could hit the switch to actually attack as well so it was that really nice mix when they had it all going that
1: would just hit the mark every time every yeah, every pass Yeah. but, if, but
0: to me like is that going to work like you can still hit those marks but if you're so reliant on that to me you might be a little bit more vulnerable on counterattack now because you know once the opposition does get it if they're the ones taking chances maybe it just opens up a bit more for them i don't know what do you reckon
1: Um. Yeah. Look, I think it would depend on your structures and you know, like how high a line you play. I I guess. Um. I mean, there's a few things. I mean, if you if you are ready for the counter attacks and you defend, you're a good team that defends in transition, which Geelong seem to be reasonably good at. Um, Yeah, but but maybe
0: maybe that'll actually be more difficult as well to actually defend in transition because you just don't have as much time to set up. Exactly. So I think that's definitely one to watch as well. Like what game style is actually going to be the most successful in this new interpretation of the game. So obviously you're still going to have a balance of attack and defense, but maybe we have just turned that dial a little bit towards the attacking. And if you're really just trying to uh, you know, control everything you're doing, I think you're opening yourself up perhaps to get scored against in spurts and that could make it really difficult to play that sort of game style. But maybe that's, not. That's right. We'll see. I don't know. That's definitely
1: That's a good point though,
0: yeah. It's all just hypothetical at the moment, isn't it, Johnny? We well, don't sure really, sure <laughs> we don't it. know any of this. But yeah, it's <laughs> exciting to actually, you know, have these new adjustments to the game. And you know, people will say, "Oh, just leave the game alone." But you know, we want a spectacle that everyone wants to go see. And you know, to yeah. to get that, the coaches aren't going to give it to you. So we, I think we, there a certain amount of tinkering is needed. Yeah, absolutely. With reason. Within reason. Can't go too crazy. We don't want zones or anything. No, absolutely not. <laughs> all right, so over the weekend, we had a couple of huge upsets. Crows over cats. What do you reckon the percentage of tipsters <laughs> that tipped that one were? Maybe diehard crow supporters?
1: I don't know. Oh, Yeah, so all those, those using the blindfold tipping tactic. Um, <laughs>
0: <laughs> so that we yeah. had that one, and we had um, later that day, the Lions getting absolutely pants by the Swans in Brisbane, and that was a bit of a turn-up as well. Yeah, it certainly was. So this is something you brought up, Johnny. Do you think there is actually that much of a gap between the best and worst teams, citing these as examples, but also just, you know, there were heaps of upsets last year as well. Like, is the gap really that big between the top four and
1: maybe, you know, the, the majority of the rest of the teams? Um, the thing I find about this, this particular topic, and this is why I brought it up, Actually, um, thanks for, for the question, Dan. Um, is I find that as the journo's especially really fall into this trap of ma- of just creating this huge disparity between between teams, whether based on the ladder or you know who's challenging for a flag, who's favourite for a wooden spoon, and they kind of build this narrative that the list is just poles apart from from the best ones between between mm, the best ones and yep. the worst ones. When I really think that obviously a list like Richmond is probably far superior to Adelaide, but I don't know if it's as big as people make it. I mean, there's a lot of kids in that Adelaide side, so it's probably that's probably a bad example. But, you know, say maybe like a Richmond and a, a Carlton, for instance. So yeah. I don't know if there's that much difference. I get what you're saying. What yeah. I get what
0: you're saying. Like, when Richmond was coming up and, you know, starting to be really competitive, and even after they'd won a premiership, like, looking at their team on paper, back then at least they weren't a team of superstars and they're still not no but they find a way to work together and to keep competing at this high level and you know they've they got get that system they've got the a beautiful system yeah. that you know no one seems to be able to blunt at least not while well, dusty's doing what he does and but like if you if if you looked at you know the the talent basis if you compared just as you did then richmond and carlton the amount of talent on Richmond I don't think is that much more than, say, what Carlton has. And I think that underlies your point that, you know, if there, if you do get Carlton on a really good day or Richmond on a slightly bad day, yeah, you're going to get an upset. I really don't think there is this huge disparity that some people would
1: have you believe there is. That's exactly right, Dan. And with one of the key things with Adelaide's performance was they just brought pressure all throughout the four quarters. And I just think that if any team is doing that, They're going to be in it. Yeah. If you bring that manic pressure, then you're
0: going to win most games, even if you are the rank underdog. Like, if you can bring that absolutely manic pressure that, you know, you basically rather die than lose the game, that's what it looks like when it's sort of happening, then you're not, you're probably not going to lose. So I think, yeah, I guess what makes the best teams the best is that they're able to, you know, bring that higher level for a longer period during the season. But, in terms of you know just the talent and what people are putting out there from week to week there's really not a huge difference it's just you know how well is it actually working how well is the, is the coach's message getting through how committed are the players so if you had everyone being as committed as each other and everyone being coached by the same person there'd be almost no difference between the teams to me that's don't know. It and
1: that's what makes it so unique
0: and i think we have seen that a bit more in uh, the last few years, there has been sort of this evenness, I think. Like, if you take out the bottom couple of teams, there was, uh, yeah, going right down the ladder, there were a lot of competitive teams that were sort of knocking on the door of the eight for a long time. I know they fell out of it eventually, but, you know, there was really, there's not really too many easy games left in the AFL, which I think is a great thing.
1: Absolutely. And, and you know, I was reading some of the predictions for the season the other day, and I some people had Fremantle as their, you know, massive improver that could almost make the eight, and then a couple had them as the wooden spoon. And it's, it's very hard to predict this stuff now. It's, <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? It, it is. I, it is. When when you do these like,
0: why, or when you do these predictions right at the start of the season, I don't know why anyone would be like that sad or feeling they've done something wrong if they get the prediction wrong. Like no one gets the prediction right. That's it's just no. it's just that hard. There's so many variables, but. You know, and I don't. Th- most people wouldn't worry about it, but you know, some people will make a prediction, and they'll just be devastated if it doesn't come <laughs> through. Even if it's like, you know, incredibly hard to predict.
1: It's the one certainty is that the final eight always changes.
0: Exactly. Yeah, yeah, which which is a great thing as well. All right. So this is one I was thinking a little bit about across the last couple of weeks, and I think this does relate a bit about the AFL trying to actually make the game a little bit more open so what do we want what's more important is it more important to have a close game or an aesthetically pleasing one so obviously you would want both if you're going to be greedy but if you could only have a close game or an aesthetically pleasing one
1: what would you have johnny what are you going for so look i go back to i guess what i said before with the scoring the um I, i don't particularly I don't need every game to be, you know, 20 goals each side sort of thing and a shootout. Um, No, no. They're nice to have, but um, I do occasionally like that sort of – and I know that we preferably would like scoring, but I do like a nice hard-fought contest that the defences are real strong and, you know, it ends up being sort of maybe, you know, 90 to 88. It's like a two-point thriller. It was a real hard-fought game and everyone was absolutely spent at the end of it – I think the beauty of our game is that there's different ways of playing it as well. Um, Absolutely. So, I know I understand the aesthetic debate, um, but I think it's more important to have teams not on total parity, but obviously, I think it's more important to have less blowouts. Uh, so mm, I would I would go with the close. Yeah.
0: I guess what made me think about this you know, it was two things you know, the AFL trying to tweak the rules, but also some of those close games last year watching them, like the standard was just, to me, it was so poor. And um there was just nothing happening. I know that's a bit extreme, but there just really wasn't a lot happening for so long. By the time it got to the end, yeah, it was close, but it just almost left me with this like hollow feeling. Like, does it even actually matter who wins this? Like it's been that horrible of a game. Like, you know what I mean? Like,
1: yeah, I think the one <laughs> game that comes to mind for me is the one, the first one after the restart mm. um, with the Pies and the yeah, Tigers, was which was the draw. It was like thirty-two all, and I know exactly what you mean. I mean, they were, they, that last couple of minutes was, you know, sort of got the blood pumping yeah. a little bit, but, but it, was it was kind of like, like a, it was
0: kind mm. of like an artificial injection. Like, oh, you're thinking, oh yeah, we should be up for this, but are we really? <laughs> like, yeah, after what we've just seen for three and a half quarters, so. I guess, to me, maybe that points to the fact that you kind of do need both. Like, you can't just be close because if you just wanted a close game, then, you know, go watch a different sport that's more often close. I don't know if AFL has more blowouts than other sports, but, like, if it's it's not about the aesthetics at all, then, you know, then it doesn't really matter what you're watching. You just want um, it to be close. And, yeah, any sport is going to be more interesting when it's close, so it's obviously really important... But I guess, you know, if you're having that game where it's been pretty close most of the time and then, you know, one team kicks away, then, you know, you want that game to have some aesthetically pleasing elements to, you know, bring along those neutral supporters so they can ride it out right to the end. So That's true. You need to keep people engaged. Yeah. I think Especially you, you with of the return
1: to 20-minute quarters.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I really do like the longer quarters. A, a lot more can happen, I think, but... uh Well, I think it's obvious it's almost half an hour more game time. But, uh, yeah, yeah. And I I do commend the AFL over it. I think I'm a bit too much on this bandwagon so far. But, you know, I'm glad that they have actually tried to, you know, open it up a little bit and make it a little bit more attractive. And, uh, yeah, so I think, to me, the answer is both. But, as you said, um, you can have that sort of more dour struggle and it can be a great game, but equally... You can have the Dow struggle and it'd be a terrible game. Yeah, as long as it's not all the time, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you just don't want that to be the the regular, I guess. But uh, yeah, I'd be interested to find out what more people think about this one because, you know, a lot of... I guess it's more about when it's not your team you're watching, right? Like, if it's not your team you're watching, do you really just want it to be close so you care or do you want to, you know, be entertained
1: it's a good question. It's, it's the measuring stick. If you're a neutral, what yeah. would you like to see in yeah. the game? What's going to keep you watching it? Yeah. And I
0: guess, yeah, there'd be a bit of a split there. But, you know, people want to see the highlights at some point. So if there's not too many highlights, they might switch off. And I think that was the thing last year as well. Like, people were confessing, even diehard football supporters, that they were just switching off. It just wasn't engaging them in a way that was actually keeping their attention. And, jeez, we really don't want that. <laughs> no, absolutely not. <laughs> oh, jeez. <clears throat> All right, so this is another one you brought up, Johnny, Johnny, and I reckon it's quite an interesting one. So why do we think it is that teams, some teams are able to remain competitive for more than a decade? Really, you know, making finals year after year, they might have a small dip, but they never go right down. So they're not bottoming out. So who comes to mind here? Teams like Geelong, obviously. Uh, You've got the Swans, probably the two best cases. I guess you could put Hawthorne into this bracket, although they have come off a little bit in the last few years is there anyone else you would add to that or are they sort of the
1: ones you're thinking of um that, yeah look absolutely those were the ones that came to mind the swans probably right at the very top of it um probably would have maybe gone west coast but i guess they, they are always a they're are always there or thereabouts yeah i'd put
0: west coast in there as well now that we think i think about it a little more
1: um but yeah look i, I look at the swans i think that they're, they're they're just the perfect example of it. And I think it really just comes down to that, it comes down to their blood culture. Um, It's just, you know, you've got, you've usually got good coaching to go with it, but you've also just got this, this ethos that, you know, young players come in and they just know exactly what's expected of them. And know what they have to do to keep their spot.
0: Yeah. It just shows you, I think, how important culture is. And you've got two great examples of Geelong and Sydney there. That just have that culture of when you when it's your turn you're coming in and you know exactly what you have to do you're playing for the team not for yourself and it's just that real team first mentality and like you can't you can't buy that cult type of culture and obviously it takes a while to develop but I think that's Absolutely. a huge reason why these clubs are
1: able to stay up there for so long it, it can't be anything else really like no and, and there's th- plenty of examples of, of teams where it hasn't gone well and you know. One of them is the team that we barrack for. Where <laughs> players are gifted games early yeah, in their career. Yeah. and Yeah, it, it doesn't really work doesn't too work. well.
0: But uh, I guess the other thing, when you're such a successful team like this, it's kind of this self-fulfilling thing. It's, it's a cycle because you're successful and you have this great culture and then people want to go play there because they know you're probably going to get the best out of yourself by going there. And that just it's just this cycle of you have success and then people want more success. So they go there and you know, you're also good in other parts. You're good at coaching, you're good at picking a draft pick. So it's just this, it's just this total organization thing where they're not really accepting mediocrity.
1: No. And, and that's why you see most of the kids in the draft. Uh, if you asked them, I'm sure nine out of 10 would say, you know, I'd like to go to punt road. <laughs> <You> know, that, <laughs> that's where I'd like to be. And exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. But, like, it brings this quote to mind. I can't remember the exact
0: quote, but I know it was Joe, Joel Solwood who said it. He said something along the lines of, we're trying to win the premiership every year. And, like, it's a very simple thing to say, and everyone wants to win the premiership. But his mindset is that, you know, anything other than striving to win the premiership is just completely... it It is a fail. Like, what's the point in, you know... Trying to do everything they're trying to do if that's not the ultimate goal, and I guess part of that is that they believe they can win it every year, and obviously they're not going to win it every year, but if you have that mentality that and it's just I think it's a powerful thing, and um, you know a lot of clubs would say they have that mentality that they're believing every year, but I don't think you could say it with as much conviction as Joel Selwood say says it.
1: I think it's a really powerful thing if everyone's buying into it. Um, because yeah, as you said, there are teams. There are plenty of teams that said. I remember uh, Port Adelaide used to say this in the early two thousands all the time. or oh, we exist to win premierships, and yeah, and they ended up losing their way a bit. I mean, they're coming better now, but yeah, I think if everyone on that list is buying into that mentality, then it's exactly. It's, it's
0: kind of ha- has to be the whole the whole organisation and especially the players, right? If they if they're believing, then uh, you know. Yeah, almost a quarter of the way there already. <laughs> so that's a really important one. So that begs a the question then. Will Geelong and Sydney ever bottom out? <laughs> <laughs> Is this can it happen? Like what what would have to happen for these guys to actually bottom out?
1: Well, they'd have to have a, a really injury stricken year to start with, I think, because I just don't think it's in their DNA to to do that. I think if you see a game with the Cats or the Swans or you know any of the other teams we've mentioned that they they're all going 100% and they're not going to make it easy for their opposition even if they are with nothing to play for that year but hmm.
0: I think uh, maybe maybe one of the other things that plays into this and I think it's probably true for West Coast as well is that these are all teams that have a true home ground advantage Geelong has a huge home ground advantage compared to other Victorian teams Sydney hasn't Made as good a use of it over the last couple of years, but traditionally, you know, interstate sides have a big home ground advantage, and of course, that's true for West Coast. So, you know, if you get, if you're winning seventy or eighty percent of your home games, you know, it's, it's good. Getting, start. It's it's a very good start when I mean, you're competing <laughs> against half the teams that have to play at grounds like Marvel and the MCG that are shared. Like that dilution of the home ground advantage, I think, does really play on a lot of Melbourne teams.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's definitely it's definitely a good thing to to have there and get you those extra few wins each season.
0: But I guess you know the reverse of that for the interstate sides is the more travel. But I feel like you know they are conditioned to that, right? They they do it year yeah. after year. So I don't oh, think, especially the
1: the Western Australian sides, yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> do feel a little sorry for
0: those guys having to travel that much. But uh... all right, next one that we're going to have a look at is uh, recycled players. So we're always there's always a lot of chat about this who's moving clubs and you know who can you get to your club so it's a big talking point all the way through the season really but especially in the off season so what does it take to make one of these players that you're drafting in from another club a recycled player a success how do we define that is it a single good good game can you call after that does it take a month does it take a season in the case of someone like Lance Franklin, do you only evaluated after his ten years are up. I don't know. <laughs> There's a lot to consider with these sort of guys.
1: What do you reckon? Um, yeah, look, I had a bit of a think about this one, Dan, and I think it's look. You probably have to zero in on it a bit more in terms of um, what the circumstances are. Whether it's a, a big name trade like a Dangerfield or a you know a Jeremy Cameron, or if it's just uh, you know a a delisted player that just got picked up, say like Oscar McDonald. Um, I think going with the trade um, scenario first. Obviously, it depends on the deal that they get as well. But uh, I think I've I've always kind of felt like if that first season's a success, then they're usually remembered as a fairly fondly. Mm, well, okay. as a, it's a yep. past market, very least, yeah. So
0: that first season is a little bit make or break in your eyes
1: yeah yeah i think i think if you're not uh hitting his straps early that season you may get it back throughout the season but if you end up sort of having like a mean say if you're a key forward like uh i'm just going to use a, an example and i hope this doesn't happen so if ben brown gets back on the park and only ends up with about you know 20 goals uh it might be you know he might have had some good games here and there but uh i would say people would look at that and go yeah maybe maybe there's more you know there's room for improvement there and uh uh, whereas if you kick fifty, I think that's probably the benchmark for a key forward right now and you'd you'd instantly say, Yep, that's that's what we got him in for. Job done. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so I guess one example that comes to mind which kind of doesn't fit with this model is Stephen May. Like he had a pretty tumultuous first year with uh you not not getting the respect of the team, a few minor incidents and then getting injured because he wasn't, you know, fit enough and all this sort of thing. But after that first season he's just gone from strength to strength and you know, he's probably close to Melbourne's most important player now. So, you know, obviously, even if that first year doesn't go exactly to plan, there is still a way back, especially for such a quality player such as May.
1: Absolutely. I mean, there's a plenty of good um, players that, that, you know, played their first game for the new teams on the weekend. Guys like, you know, Stevenson for North had a decent game. I think he had 33 touches. Alia, Alia, Fantasia, Fantasia. Um, but yeah, look. I think when it comes to those trades, you just got to. It's got to be at at least half a season, I'd say, before you start. Um, you know, heralding the trade of success.
0: Yeah. yeah, it's interesting though, because you know, when if it is a trade, then you know, you are giving away draft picks, and you know, the draft by all measures really is a bit of a lottery. <laughs> so, like, if if you do get someone in and it performs admirably for you know a season or two. You know, is that worth more than, you know, the draft pick that may or may not have come off. So I think most of the discussion I've heard in the last two years about trading is they're they're almost always saying the team that gets the player is sort of the winner because you know the draft is just that unpredictable. Unless yeah, it's a that's first round draft
1: pick. You bring an experienced player in and they're proven and ready to hit the ground running. There's always a risk with the draft picks, I guess, yeah.
0: Yeah, and I guess the other side of that coin is there's always a risk with a player bringing in, especially that if they're injury true, prone. So you're kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't, in a way. But I think overall, you'd probably say there's less risk with a player bringing in a, um, a recycled player because they're a bit of a known quantity. Whereas someone you're drafting, you really you, you, got, you know you, maybe you do two the three years. Yeah, you yeah. do the research, but you know it's always a bit of a hail mary. And they are getting better at drafting, I think, in general. But you know. It's just one of those things. Who's going to be successful? You know, once, once the draft is done, everyone really pretty much starts from the same position. Doesn't matter what part pick you were. And, uh, you know, some guys aren't quite built for the AFL system, unfortunately. But, you know, there's plenty of success stories as well. All right, let's get back into stand rule conversation because I know that's what you guys have been waiting for. Should the stand rule apply if a player is taking a shot for goal? Oh, there was a bit of this on the weekend. Did you see this? Where they were basically taking, you know, two or three steps, uh, either left or right, and then basically not having to kick over the player on the mark and getting a lot closer to goal. Yes, it look yes. Great. <laughs> and I
1: saw a pretty, um, a bit of a failed attempt at that in the D's game with uh, Alex Neil Bullen. <laughs> oh, is that what he was
0: trying to do? I had no idea what he was yeah. trying to do.
1: <laughs> I think that's what he was trying to do. I might be wrong, but um, yeah... Uh, Um, Yeah, I'm I'm not totally sure what the answer is for this yet, but um, I would say it's probably not necessary in your defensive 50, maybe. Um, What do you reckon, Dan?
0: Yeah, I think um, Gary Lyons said something about this this morning as well, and I think I agree with what he said. He basically said, if the player's taking a shot for goal, the player on the mark should be able to move uh, east west, so yeah, yeah, yeah horizontally yeah. basically. And I think that makes sense because, you know, if the, if you're giving them 30 seconds, then everything's stopped. The only thing that can happen is basically they're taking the shot for goal, really. So, if you if you got to guard go the mark there, then obviously you can't go over the mark. But if you can't sort of cut off that angle a little bit there, then it's almost like there's no point in him being there. It, it it does
1: look a little bit silly. <laughs> the thing I've always found a little bit hard to adjudicate and I don't know how they do it is how they decide when a shot for goals being taken and when to put that shot clock up and things like that yeah I just find it opens up more sort of interpretation it, it definitely it yeah. definitely
0: does I think maybe like maybe the rook it would just have to be like if it's in the 50 meter arc then you just yeah. have to assume they're taking a shot I think it's I done. Think defensive 50 yeah yeah I think Oh, so you would have it for defensive 50 as well. So, sorry, uh, the one with the men on the mark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So um, basically, yeah, if you just had it as a blanket rule, if if the player's taking a shot for goal, then the person on the mark can move yeah. laterally. Yeah. I, I think yeah. that In works. In their own 50, yeah. 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 And anything outside of that, then the stand rule applies. To me, that would make a lot of sense um, because at the moment, it does seem to be just a bit too easy for the, player taking the shot to creep that extra sort of 5 metres that they wouldn't normally get so it'll be interesting to see whether the AFL wants to actually do anything on this or they'll just keep letting it happen
1: I guess we'll get yeah. used to
0: it but it, it did look weird
1: <laughs> it, it did look strange yeah
0: so last one on the stand rule I promise <laughs> <laughs> alright so will the game's best ruckman be less valuable if the game becomes more free flowing due to the stand rule with less stoppages, so we've said there were less stoppages, and the eye test again showed you it was more free flowing, less stoppages. A Ruckman going to be as important? Do you really need a Max Gorn if the trends continue here? Well,
1: I, I, I don't think they will be a lot. I mean, they might not be as influential, but I don't think it'll be. I don't think they'll be made redundant. I think um, the games, you know, the games best Ruckman, I think. You know they'll still be valuable if they're great contested marks, like a you know a Max Scorn or a you know a Grundy. They'll still be good for that sort of filling the hole and transition and things like that. And they'll be able to you know on the wing, sort of contest for a mark. But um, I think also their their hitouts might become more valuable as well. If there's less stoppages, I think their hit-outs to advantage might be more decisive. Um, yeah, that's yeah, just my I think yeah.
0: there's. There's a lot that the Ruckman is still having to do, as you've described there, so even if there are a few less stoppages, I don't think it's going to have a huge impact on the way that they can affect their ga- the game. As you were saying, you know, they're still going to have plenty of opportunities, especially out of centre, to get those real kits to advantage and get the ball moving that team's way. So really, maybe they won't be taking quite as many stoppages, but... I think they can still impact the game in the ways you've described there. So I mean, I was, maybe
1: for the pure tap ruckmen that don't get a lot of positions, they yeah, could be in a bit of trouble. But That, um, might, that yeah. might be
0: a little... Like, yeah, because if just purely, if there's less stoppages, there's less need for that sort of player, right? So, Absolutely, yeah. You do need to be a bit more adaptable, perhaps. All right, so I just wanted to finish with a bit of a... Um, what would I even call this? A bit of a nod to Sydney and some of their young players. They're doing amazing, an amazing job of kind of like rebuilding on the run here without going all the way down to the bottom. And I think a lot of it has to do with their academy players. So I think Absolutely. they might have something along the lines of 10 academy players now. So um, whatever they're doing in that academy, it's working. <laughs> hey. So I think at least two of these guys, maybe three of them on the weekend were all academy players. So they had three debutants, <clears throat> Errol Goulden, Uh, Braden Campbell and Logan McDonald, who apparently is uh, their saviour when Buddy eventually has to retire. So
1: (laughs) I think that's the plan, yeah. Yeah, there's
0: there's a lot to like there. They absolutely tore Brisbane apart. And this guy, Errol, classic AFL name, of course, (laughs) he absolutely tore him apart. His first shot for goal, he was 40 out near the boundary line. It went as straight as an arrow. Never looked like missing. He looked so confident. It's
1: just—it was a nice kicking action. Yeah.
0: I don't know, like, if he has like a background in other sport, but it just looks that pure that he could do it in his sleep almost.
1: It was almost like the perfect golf shot. Yeah, (laughs) Uh, struck it perfectly. Just yeah, just flushed it. Yeah. Yeah,
0: and so he kicked three goals on the day. Gold. We've got golden. Yeah, golden. Sorry. So three goals, and he was also spotting up targets inside fifty. He laced out Heaney going inside fifty, and a couple of others. He was just making it look ridiculously easy. And for someone in their first game to be doing that, geez, he's a great prospect for any City supporter. You'd be keen to have him in your team for many years to come.
1: I mean, you look at his um, you look at his I guess his physique and his stature. I mean, I'm pretty sure he's only about. One hundred and seventy-two centimeters, maybe give or take, and seventy odd kilos, seventy-two maybe. Like, he's 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 a bit pint-sized, but, yeah. um, it, but it, it he's certainly it got so the footy easy, smarts. Right? Yeah, he's got the footy smarts. He's got the footy smarts, and as you said, his kicking ability is he's a very crafty kicker of the footy, and he doesn't get the blinkers in front of goal, which is, I think is very handy for a for a young uh, midfielder forward.
0: Yeah, he really stood out in a game where, you know, that last kick going inside 50 is always the hardest and always, also the, just the shots for goal, just being that composed. So it was pretty amazing. Apparently, Paul Roos identified him at 10 years old to get involved with the Sydney Academy. So I don't oh, wow. quite know how you pick
1: someone that early, but, you know, if anyone could do it, it's probably Paul Ruse, So <laughs> It's like one of those um, English Premier League stories where, like, a Manchester United spots a six-year-old kid. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, give Ruzi another tick there, another one he can add to his book of accomplishments. But yeah, <laughs> I think uh, Sydney, they'll be a tough side to beat, as they always are, but even more so. So it looks like they're going to quicken it up a little bit. They were pretty defensive last year, but still did pretty well. But maybe they'll open it up a little bit more this year.
1: There was definitely a lot more flow to their play. I think, um, yeah, I feel like John Longmire really just sort of taught him to let it just, you know, all systems go. And, yeah, a lot more running up and down. So I'm pretty good sure to see because, yeah.
0: yeah. I'm pretty sure theirs was the top score of the round. I, I might be mistaken been, on that. Yeah. But I know they got up to 125. And, uh, yeah, that was a massive score. So how many goals did they kick? Uh... So they managed 19 goals. Wow. That, that is 19, a, That is a lot of goals. Anyone so cracking anywhere near 20 whew. in uh, this era is mighty impressive. And, you yeah, know, they weren't yeah. playing against mugs; They are playing against the Bruzy Lions who got the prelims at, on their home yes. deck. So it would be interesting to see if they can back up that performance. Hey? That will be good. Yep. yep L- lots to like there. All right. Well, that pretty much brings us to the end of another episode of Footy Time. So I want to thank... Co-host for today, Johnny Raff, did a sterling job. Thank you very much. Good to have a chat about all things footy, and uh, it will be interesting to see how some of these trends uh, continue as we continue into the season. Plenty to like so far. Hope your team won, but uh, you know not everyone can win, so we'll get there eventually. But uh, thanks for joining us, and uh, spread the word, footy time. Uh, tell your friends and family if you enjoyed it, and uh, get amongst it. So bye for now.